welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Have you gone over and gotten your subscription to Counterpunch Plus? If you haven't, now would be a great time. It's the fun drive. We're trying to raise what we need to raise to pay for the web hosting, to keep the lights on, to keep all of the things moving so that Counterpunch can keep publishing as we have for almost 30 years. If you value independent media from the left, from all of these different perspectives, as Counterpunch has been bringing to you, go over to the website, get the subscription, make the donation today. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate support for independent media and support for left-wing thinkers, left-wing ideas that really do need to be out there. And I'm so happy today to be able to speak with a really important thinker and author who has just published a I would say, critical new book that we're going to talk about in a minute. It's Christina Heatherton. She's with us today. Uh, Christina is the Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College in Connecticut. She's the co- uh, co-editor of Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter, and most importantly for our purposes today, she is the author of the brand new book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. Wow, what a book. Christina Heatherton, welcome to Counterpunch. Thanks so much, Eric. I'm so excited to be here. Boy, I I have to admit this book was really like, I mean, what do I say without sounding like a cliched guy, like a page turner, you know, Uh, I don't know. It was uh, it was a barn burner, whatever the words are, you know, (laughs) it was really great. I couldn't I couldn't put it down um, because it's so full of ideas. It's full of more than just history. It's full of ideas. And we want to talk about some of those ideas with you today. Let's talk a little bit about you, if we could put the spotlight on you, make you feel nervous, squirm in your chair a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your background, Christina, um, specifically your your research and what brought you to this project, which we're going to be talking about here this evening. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, thanks so much for having me on and thanks for the questions. Um, whew, uh, you, <laughs> you're right about the squirming. I'm not always too good with the Christina Heatherton, This Is Your Life. Uh, let me say there's two ways uh, I can answer that question. One... Um, is I suppose a, a personal story. Uh, so um, my uh, my mother's family is uh, Okinawan American, Japanese American, and uh, uh, before the Japanese American internment in World War II, there were FBI raids uh, and they targeted organizers. And one organizer was my great uncle Morisai Yamashiro, who was a farm worker in the Imperial Valley, California. Uh, he was Okinawan, so he could speak uh, Okinawan dialects, Japanese, Spanish, English. Uh, and so he was a really well-placed organizer in the Imperial Valley. Um, and so the the story I heard was that when federal agents came to his door, he he was ready to fight back. His son said, quote, since he had been down there with Pancho Villa uh, fighting in the Mexican Revolution, he knew how to take care of business. So if he was going down, he was going to take them down with him. Uh, so I was totally shocked by this story. I had been really interested in um, the history of revolutionary currents of the Atlantic world, the common wind that Julius Scott writes about, and had done a lot of work uh, in um, uh, in kind of that world. I, I, I was a I helped start a group called the Radical History uh, Group out of Bristol, England, where you know we we did a lot of uh, events around that history. Um, so initially, I thought I was going to do a kind of revolutionary currents of the Pacific book and and really think about my uncle's story. You know, what did it mean that 
you know, uh, there were a lot of Okinawans who came to California through Mexico, and some of them did have engagements with the Mexican Revolution. So I was just really kind of thrilled to think, well, what would have been the basis for alliance and solidarity? How would that have even come about? Um, and I'll just say, you know, so that's the kind of the first way in the, uh, you know, the other way in is is politically. I've always been interested in interconnected global struggles uh, and the question of internationalism. I've done a lot of work around uh, housing, policing, racism, and militarism. Um, I've uh, worked on a lot of different pieces of political and uh uh, popular education, um, working with housing organizers in particular. So, um, you know, policing the planet is one of, 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 uh, many different kinds of, uh, those kind of collections that I've done. And those, you know, have always been about getting people to think about seemingly disparate, uh, places and struggles, you know, what sort of alliances and common languages uh, can be developed among them. So, you know, in some ways, this, this seems like a departure from some of that earlier work, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a continuation. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I couldn't help but think throughout the book about like, you know, the timeline of all of these things and in and, and Pancho Villa and the Mexican Revolution. And like a few years later, it's the Russian Revolution and all of these ideas all percolating at the same time and what's going on in Spain at the same time that what's going on in Mexico and what's going on in Russia. And, you know, it's fascinating. And there's so many different threads. And I think that you bring them all together. And uh, I didn't even plan that segue. But since I used the word threads, let me ask you a little bit about rope. That's where the book begins. It's a fascinating it's I almost, I'm almost I can't think of another book where I would say like spoiler alert for the first page of the book but like spoiler alert there's a really beautiful metaphor that opens this book and you talk about rope so tell us a little bit about rope and why the book opens there sure um well you know this was a tricky book to write because I wanted to talk about revolution I wanted to talk about internationalism and I wanted to uh, think about it in relationship to the Mexican Revolution all of which people come with a lot of very fully formed I ideas uh, you know and so I, I I wanted to be able to give readers a kind of imaginary that they could hold on to for the uh, entire book and I you know, also just wanted to defamiliarize the familiar. So every chapter in the book is uh, named after the making of something, how to make love, how to make a dress, how to make a living, how to make a university. And the introduction is called How to Make a Rope. And it's essentially a political economy of 20th century lynch rope. Uh, and so to make a, a long story short, and like you said, you know, we won't we won't spoil it for the readers. Um, you know, I was totally fascinated in the different composites that produced rope uh, in this period. You had uh, a fiber Filipinos called abaca or Manila, uh, which um, uh, was one of the main uh, exports of that country. You had from southern Mexico sisal and hennequin. Uh, you know, which are um, uh, related to the agave plant. You had uh, uh, cotton uh, rope and hemp rope coming from Jim Crow sharecropping regimes. So, you know, I, I was just really floored thinking about how all these strands came together to produce rope of, differing, of varying widths 
and strength. So there's already a kind of world tied together in the production of this tyrannical instrument. And what I say in the book, you know, ropes, the ligatures of the global economy materialize the processes by which people around the world have their lives and their fates intertwined. And by unbraiding those strands, we, we can also begin to see how people understood their struggles in alignment with one another. So struggles that we might customarily think about as discrete, struggles against colonial dispossession, imperial rule, capitalist immiseration. You know, I think we have a real challenge in our imagination to be able to think about these things together at the same time. And so for me, the uh, the the, the rope is a kind of device uh, to, to pull these things together and to introduce the main concept of the book, which is convergent spaces, right? How do we begin to understand a world already united, uh, you know, uh, under global capital, but also how do we understand the compression and the entanglements of different radical traditions and the new articulations of struggle that they produced? And it's not just about the commodity, it's also about the labor that is required to create the commodity, to produce the thing. So it is simultaneously the thing and the processes that go into the thing, but also the labor and the people, the humans that do the labor. And it's kind of, I mean, it's dialectical in that way. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, but good. I we do, agree. <laughs> we agree. <laughs> um. I want to ask you a little bit about making. You said, you know, uh, the, the structure of the book and that every chapter is, you know, essentially about making. And so talk a little bit about what you mean by making, because it isn't just the sort of, um, you know, classical Marxist, eco e you know, economic understanding of production, right? You mean a lot more than just producing. Well, when you think about global capital and, and you know, I mean, and you think about the, the totality of capitalism, uh, you know, which includes but also exceeds the realm of production, you know, you have to think about extraction and transportation and refinement and consumption and destruction, you know, the social relations that go into it. There's an entire universe uh, you know, that makes uh, accumulation regimes possible. And so, you know, to think about struggles against global capital, you have to be attended to, uh, you know, to, to all of that. <laughs> and uh, so, um, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Was there a question? I don't even, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, okay. The question really is about, you know, what you mean when you say make, and I guess I could make. flesh that out a little bit more and, and because it's both about making as in producing physical goods, but it's also about making the making of ideas. Internationalism is an idea. Your the, the, the creation of these, uh, uh, ties across countries, across language barriers and so forth. It's a, it's a process of building solidarity is like building a product. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, there's a lot that I'm doing with some intentionality with the making. The making is obviously a hat tip to E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class. And there's a whole world of social history that I see myself very much in dialogue with. Although to to be specific, the kind the 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 kind of variant of social history that I see myself coming from is one that doesn't begin with Thompson, but it begins with Du Bois and it begins with James. Um, uh, you know, there's a, a a very long history 
you know, that, that people like Marcus Redeker talk about is history from below, right? How do we think about how history has uh, been produced through struggle, through class struggle? Um, and how do we, you know, approach the kind of theoretical and methodological challenges of telling that history? So, um, uh, you know, making for me is both uh, in a kind of like very loud acknowledgement in the whole structure of the book that I'm in dialogue with uh, those traditions. But, uh, you know, what I get from Du Bois is also uh, an analysis that, um, you know, enables us to... Uh, understand contingency, you know, in, in across all of Du Bois's works, I've, I'm really moved by his idea that, you know, if something's made, if you understand how something's made, you understand that it can be unmade. Uh, and I think sometimes, particularly when we talk about capital, there's a finality to each of the components, you know, we forget how, uh, how contingent, how unpredictable, how much a product of struggle uh, the, the, you know, the current world is, um, you know, I think we lose sight of how it's produced in struggle and, you know, how, how much power we have to continue to change it in struggle. So, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the question because I think this is, it's, it's, it's personally and politically an important concept for me, but it's also something that I wanted to elevate throughout the whole book because, you know, all of the different, um, uh, people that I feature, all the different struggles, I think have this in common, the sense of contingency, possibility and struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And that does come through in the book. And uh, even just looking at the table of contents, I mean, you can see how that thread comes together. But let's let's take a step back and pretend for a moment that everyone listening to us doesn't know all the details about the Mexican Revolution, which, of course, I'm sure they do. They have no need to learn anything about it. But for those who may pretend that they don't know, why don't you help us to remind us what the Mexican Revolution was all about, what Mexican society was like leading up to the revolution, and what the revolution revolution uh, left in its wake? Sure. Well, you know, the Mexican Revolution uh, that broke out in 1910 is often narrated as a contained national event. Um, and it's it, usually described as uh, something that exploded out of opposition that coalesced against the president, whose name was Porfirio Diaz, who ruled for over three decades, uh, beginning in 1876 and ending shortly after the revolution in 1911. Um, and what you see under Diaz's rule, that entire period uh, is called the Porfiriato. Uh, you, you see the modernization of the country. You know, there's uh, uh, dramatic new incursions of, of foreign investment. And, uh, you know, there's a complementary uh, growth of uh, roads and rails and pipelines. And in order to accommodate a lot of this new investment, you have mass dispossessions of the peasantry. You have the intense growth of new industries, which means, uh, you know, the uh, intense exploitation of a growing industrial working class and factories and mines and oil fields. Uh, you also have new housing markets. So you have a lot of renters that are uh, also being exploited. Um, and you have a frustrated middle class who feels like they're both not being represented and also they're not profiting from uh, these new machinations. So you have fractures among the elites. Uh, you know, you have a loss of legitimacy because essentially Diaz is just trying to roll with an iron fist. 
uh, and is putting quite a lot of soldiers and rurales on these uh, railroads. So you have the kind of perfect cauldron for revolution. I, I would just say two things, though, about this. Uh, one is that, you know, sometimes there's a danger in exceptionalizing this as just a Mexican story. This is also a global story. The conditions that are happening in Mexico are happening around the world as different countries are being pulled into the frenzy of finance capital. So you have dispossession, the loss of subsistence agriculture. You have people unmoored from uh, ways of life, you know, uh, so you know, and, and people are forced to move because of colonial dispossession, because of imperial rule, because of military aggression or the threat of it, and because of capitalist immiseration. Um, so, you know, the, the conditions uh, th that produce the Mexican Revolution are not just unique to Mexico. And um, there's, uh, and I'm sorry if I'm jumping on your next question, but I, you know, there's, uh, importantly, a lot that prefigures U.S. hegemony in, you know, that, that also build the conditions for the Mexican Revolution. So just very quickly, by the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution in 1910, a quarter of all U.S. investment, uh, you know, uh, lies in Mexico. Uh, U.S. investors own like over 80% of mineral rights. They own more of Mexico's surface than all Mexican entities. Uh, you know, and the kind of patterns of rule that the U.S. develops in Mexico portends, uh, you know, uh, forms of rule that it develops over the 20th century in other countries. It's in Mexico that the U.S. becomes a creditor nation for the first time. Um, and I think that there's a new modality of imperialism that develops uh, in the U.S.'s relationship with Mexico. So, you know, it's it's both an event that I feel like has to be understood in a global context. And if you're somebody who's interested in thinking about the ascendancy of U.S. hegemony, you have to think about the U.S.'s relationship to Mexico in this period. Absolutely. And, and simultaneously, for those who were opposing imperialism and opposing U.S. hegemony and finance capital and all of that, you see that thread as well. Like I was in reading through your book and in thinking about this period, I couldn't help but thinking back to like, you know, John Reed and John Reed's time, you know, in reporting about what was in Mexico, coming back to the U.S. and a few years later, he's in Russia, you know, and writing, you know, 10 Days That Shook the World. And the literally some of the same people and individuals went from one to the other and could make some of these connections. So talk a little bit about that, because this is something I think we could think of in a, in a, in a modern context that maybe didn't exist in the prior, in the century prior to that. Mm. Well, yeah, I have so much to say. I'm just trying to collect my thoughts. This is a great point. Um, Maybe I'll say it this way. Yes, John Reed is somebody who uh, figures in the book. And, you know, a lot of people forget before he wrote 10 Days That Shook the World, he was in Mexico. His first book is an insurgent Mexico. He goes down as a reporter for Metropolitan Magazine uh, and is, uh, you know, writing, as I say, you know, not only reportage, but also short stories about what he's seeing there. Um, and uh, has a very unique perspective on the kind of subjectivities of U.S. imperialism that he sees through, like, these, uh, you know, fortune hunters and, uh, you know, it, like, small-scale investors that he's meeting in Mexico. I talk about that a little bit there. But I think what's interesting is that, you know, as you say, there's a lot of people who... Uh, I think we would associate with an internationalist tradition because of their relationship to the communist international, which doesn't, you know, happen until 1919. 
we, you know, we forget that a lot of these figures are in Mexico prior to that. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to say, I, I feel like we forget sometimes that the kind of, you can trace the, uh, the, the kind of chaos that the global capitalist system throws up and how it produces its own contradictions by thinking about, you know, what preceded the common turn and the communist international, you know, uh, I mean, for example, Ho Chi Minh, before he became a, a major opponent of French colonialism and U.S. imperialism in Vietnam, he was a founding member of the French Communist Party. Sen Katayama, who was a, 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 a Japanese radical, a key opponent of Japanese imperialism, he was a founding member of the Communist Party USA, and he was a you know staunch ally to black radicals in the U.S. who saw him as a fighter against white supremacy. Uh, in the book, I talk about M.N. Roy, who, you know, who, who began as a, 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 a fighting British colonialism in India uh, and ends up, you know, after seeking arms and, and support for an anti-colonial struggle, he ends up in revolutionary Mexico in 1917. And he says, there in the land of my rebirth, he, he goes from being what he calls a diehard nationalist to actually triangulating his experience and becoming an internationalist. And, you know, actually, M.N. Roy, this man from India, uh, fighting British colonialism, becomes one of the founding members of the Mexican Communist Party. So, you know, I think that this is uh, highlighting these figures offers us a different trajectory to think about the history of internationalism. So instead of saying, here's what the common turn organized, and here's a kind of organizational history we can follow from there, I think there's something tremendously fascinating to think about what compelled people to move, what compelled people to develop solidarity, and how do we trace an internationalism from below uh, that, that preceded the common turn. And another interesting thing about this book, and something I wanted to commend you on as well, is that in, in highlighting some of the figures that you do, I mean, you highlight a lot of people, so I'm not going to say it's, oh, it's just like three or four. There's a lot of different people that make an appearance here, some more, some less. But some of the key figures that really struck me as, um, I don't know, what do you want to call them? You know, uh, revolutionary figures that aren't your household names aren't the ones that people would traditionally think of when they think of this period. Um, you know, whether it was Ale Alexandra Kollontai or Elizabeth Catlett, the artist or whomever, you know, there were a lot of different people that get highlighted in this book to illustrate much larger points. So I wanted to ask you two, I guess, related questions. One, the importance of highlighting these kinds of figures. And then secondly, talk a little bit about cultural production, because like I was thinking about that, my background, at least in undergrad, was in art history. So I had uh, encountered Elizabeth Catlett in a much different context without the political background and understanding all of that. So anyway, can you talk a little bit about cultural production as well and uh, the making of this revolutionary culture? Sure. Well, let me answer the first part of your question first, which is, um, you know, I'll just say simply that a, a tip Marcus Redeker gave me was he said, if you want to tell uh, history from below, you have to go where... Uh, the archives of uh, working working class and and poor people are held right, and so you know unlike unlike the Carnegies and the Rockefellers, <laughs> you know there are seldom uh, you know well preserved archives of of papers where you could easily walk in and 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 read about people's lives and struggles. So what he said is. You have to go to where people's stories are. So that means going to the welfare rolls. That means going to 
prison records, right? And so a, a lot of the book uh, archivally goes to these places. And, and sometimes it, it follows the kind of big names in, in order to tell, like you said, the histories of people who normally fall out of view. So um, chapter three is called How to Make a University, and it's about Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas. Uh, and I initially had chose to tell this story because this is where Ricardo Flores Magón, one of the key agitators uh, of the Mexican Revolution, you know, he dies in Kansas. So there's a, a very strong paper trail that that takes us to uh, his incarceration there. Um, and, and, you know, once he's there, there's an extraordinary, extraordinary number of records of the people that he was uh, commiserating with, that he was educating, you know, that he was organizing with. And so there's a way that I try to tell the story of some of those figures, you know, people like Jose Martinez, um, who was a Mexican prisoner who allegedly, you know, fought to defend uh, Flores Magón's honor, uh, you know, who participated in this university of radicalism that we would not have heard of otherwise. Um, and, and, and maybe I'll just to start answering the second question, you know, what I found when I went into the uh, National Archive uh, in um, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, was was an actual university that the prisoners had built. So, you know, World War One, uh, you have these new federal laws against espionage and sedition, which, you know, criminalizes dissent. So, you know, you have communist, anarchist, pacifist, nationalist, socialist, everybody's locked up together and they're organizing with each other and they're building an actual university. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's, uh, I mean, extraordinary columns they're writing and the papers they're producing. There's a really rich history of culture uh, in, in that chapter um, that I'd, I'd be happy to talk more about. But you asked me about Elizabeth Catlett, and I, you know, I, I feel like I could talk about her for years and years. So it's Elizabeth Catlett's image that uh, uh, graces the cover of my book. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, what can I say? I mean, uh, culture, as you mentioned, is essential to um, to building any kind of revolutionary movement. Uh, and so in the sixth chapter, I talk about Elizabeth Catlett, who was an artist, a sculptor, a printmaker, who uh, belonged to and also helped build a number of different internationalist cultural centers. So in the book, I talk about the Southside Community Art Center in Chicago, the George Washington Carver School in Harlem. You know, she was a teacher, a, a beloved teacher in both of these places. And in Mexico City, she became a part of something called the Taller de Grafica Popular, which was another internationalist art collective. And, you know, what I'm interested in tracing in, in that chapter was how, again, were all these seemingly disparate radical struggles that were opposing racism, sexism, fascism, militarism, and capitalism, how did people make sense of them and how did they produce a revolutionary culture? And how can we start to read some of that backwards by looking at the art that was produced in these places? Um, I want to spend at least a couple of minutes returning to W.E.B. Du Bois since he, uh, some of his ideas really inject themselves actually throughout the book, really. So you talk a little bit about W.E.B. Du Bois and, and which of his ideas, maybe 
either the more popular ones that people might know, or, you know, I don't know how I want to frame this other than to say, just tell us a little bit about Du Bois and Du Boisian thinking and how that forms part of the framework of history in this book. Sure. <clears throat> well, um, Du Bois is a huge influence through and through, you know, in the acknowledgments I, I mentioned that I, you know, I worked with Robin D.G. Kelly, who, uh, you know, we would do, um, I mean, we, we'd spend a lot of time talking about Du Bois and he would dare me. He would say, this is how you need to write. So, you know, stylistically, there was a lot I took from Du Bois. He's, uh, you know, um, some people think about him as a kind of like late Victorian writer. He has these, you know, a, a, I mean, he's, he's a gorgeous, phenomenal writer, but he also takes uh, poetry and prose really seriously. And I, 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 I like that challenge. So, you know, there's, there's the boys I think is also in the kind of texture of the book. Um, but conceptually, you know, I, I'm, I'm really pleased that Du Bois uh, seems to be getting his due in a way that I don't think he was when I started conceptualizing the book. Uh, you know, there's uh, different ways that Du Bois, like a lot of Black radical figures, can seem to be frozen in time and some of his insights. Uh, you know, Du Bois even said to his biographer, like, do not let the earlier part of my life overshadow the, the, the later part of my life. And, you know, Du Bois was uh, quite a brilliant thinker about. Um, a revolution about capitalism, about Marxist thought, uh, in ways that I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes we feel like we have to go back to the drawing board, uh, for now. So, you know, there, I, I would, there's a lot I, I draw from Du Bois, but I would just, uh, say briefly, there are two key concepts. One is Du Bois's concept of the color line and other is his concept of the new imperialism. So, uh, you know, Du Bois, Du Bois, the way that he writes about the color line, uh, you know, I mean, it shifts over time, but I, I feel like uh, over the, the first few decades of the 20th century, he's really offering us a way to understand uh, the evolution of um, how a new form of imperialism is coming into being. Uh, and how it's being legitimated through racism. So, uh, so you know, there's a lot that I write about in the book about how he's using the color line. What's you know, and 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 how he's thinking, like, just like Frederick Douglass, quite expansively uh, 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 about how this works. So, you know, he's not simply thinking about anti-black racism. Du Bois is one of our fiercest and uh, and foremost anti-imperialist, but he's thinking about, you know, indigenous genocide in the U.S. He's thinking about uh, U.S. aggression towards Mexico. He's thinking about anti-Asian racism. Um, you know, th this is all formative to the way that he's he's thinking about how the color line is built and what what sort of capitalist spaces it enables to come into being. So, uh, you know, in 1914, Du Bois writes a piece in the crisis called, uh, I think it's called Why Mexico, or it could just be called Mexico, and it's about the uh, U.S. invasion of Veracruz. And he, uh, in this piece, and in a piece he writes the following year called The African Roots of War, he's um, 
thinking a lot about this idea of the new imperialism. What's coming into being in the late 19th and early 20th century? And how do we think about the growth of U.S. power within uh, this kind of new modality of uh, empire? So, um, you know, to make a like a long story short, I don't know how much time we have, but um, uh, the the form of imperialism uh, is one that's seemingly democratized. So, uh, you know, instead of, uh, you know, he says in an, in an earlier period, you know, like wealth production was, uh, you know, appeared to be the divine right of kings, right? You have a kind of bourgeois revolution being extended and legitimated by this idea that it enabled the kind of everyday man, the common man, to also benefit from it. And so Du Bois is very attendant to a kind of subjectivity that accompanies this, this idea, you know, uh, that, um, you know, any white man, uh, anybody who identified as white, uh, could share in the spoils of financiers of the period, whether or not they owned any assets, you know, whether or not that was true. Uh, and, you know, w- what I talk about in the book is how it's in this exact period that, according to uh, political economists like Giovanni Arrighi, this is also the ascendancy of U.S. hegemony. And so I think Du Bois gives us some language to both understand that there is a decisive new moment for the global capitalist system coming into being, and, uh, you know, around the same period that the that that U.S. hegemony is ascending. So we have to understand these two things as a specific moment in time uh, that I think really marks the kind of uh, struggles against global capital in this period. Yeah, I was thinking about some of um, Du Bois's writings on imperialism, and well, obviously, I mean, <laughs> at least for me, uh, anytime you think about imperialism, I also think about Lenin, and I think about the highest stage of capitalism, and the way that some of their analysis kind of really does dovetail with each other. And in, in, in talking about this new globalized capital or finance capital in particular, um, so can you can you just talk a little bit i i mean i know i'm like jumping around but there's a couple of really big figures that are off that are very popular that make an appearance here that i think we should at least mention tell us a little bit about the uh the cameo that we have from our italian friend gramsci and what we talk about with regard to gramsci and uh well how gramsci fits into this book sure well in the chapter the uh how to make a university uh that's about leavenworth federal penitentiary um, there's a, a section I spend trying to think about Gramsci in relationship to Ricardo Flores Magón. Um, and I don't think the two are, are too often put in dialogue with one another, uh, except for maybe the coincidence of their confinement, uh, you know, around the same period. So Gramsci, of course, is, um, <clears throat> Uh, in a fascist prison in Italy, and uh, Flores Magón is in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas. What I thought was really interesting was to juxtapose them as, you know, both thinkers that are trying to understand how, you know, an organic uh, uh, intellectuals of the working class can develop, what it means to think about that in a prison, but what I was most interested in was really thinking about how Gramsci's unfinished essay, some aspects of the Southern question, 
um, really resonated with uh, some of Flores Magón's writings uh, about how to build political alliances to confront the kind of struggle at hand. So for Gramsci, you know, he was somebody from the South. He's from Sardinia, right? And he's very interested in struggles of the peasantry there. And as movements for fascism were growing, you know, I think he was very interested in how uh, Southern landowners uh, and Northern capitalists were making these very successful appeals to the Southern peasantry through nationalism, right? Uh, Gramsci was also deeply uh, embedded in struggles among uh, Northern industrial workers in Turin. Um, And, uh, you know, I think the Southern question is his effort to really think about how these struggles can be conjoined. So, you know, for peasants in the South, this this requires renouncing the kind of nationalism that weaves them into, uh, you know, a a proto-fascist agenda. But in the North, this also means disabusing people of the racism and chauvinistic beliefs that they hold towards uh, Southern, you know, peasants in the South. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated move because it's not simply, okay, capitalism screwing us all over. And so therefore we have to have unity. There's a way in which he's attendant to like the regionally specific uh, struggles, but he's carefully thinking through how, you know, how you build alliances and how critical racism is as a fetter to preventing them. So, you know, I, I, I moved from Gramsci to think through some of uh, Magon's writings in both uh, articles he wrote for Regeneración, which was the uh, newspaper that he and his comrades uh, wrote, and also in some of his speeches and some of the letters that he writes from prison. Because I think, you know, we, we forget to our peril how much people are thinking in painstaking ways about how you produce alliances across seemingly disparate spaces and struggles. Uh, And so, uh, you know, Gramsci, another incarcerated intellectual in this period, you know, is thinking through very similar questions, uh, you know, in face of fascism. So, you know, these continue to be relevant questions. When um, you mentioned his name already, so let's drop it one more time. When Marcus Redeker was on this show and we were talking about history from below and we were talking about what it means to make a history and historiography and so forth, we talked about on the one hand, it is kind of, you know, documenting the history of what's come before, but in a more, in a more real sense, it's really about informing our present and in thinking about our future. And that's one of the ways in which we understand history from below. And so I want to ask you, how does the history that you're making, to use the the word that we've been talking about here, the history that you're making here, how is it intended to inform our present and our future? Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm I'm a fan of Marx's line that we have to draw our poetry from the future. And also by his many cautions about um, drawing on, you know, nostalgic, farcical imitations of past revolutionary struggles. So, you know, the book is called Arise, exclamation mark, um, because it, it uh, you know, takes as its title the first lyric of the Internationale. Uh, and, you know, as I say in the conclusion, there's a, 
you know, a really interesting history of other authors who have gone to the Internationale and plumbed its lyrics in order to try to make sense of the, the struggle before them. Uh, you know, um, Melvin Dubofsky writes We Shall Be All, which is a history of the anarcho-syndicalist industrial workers of the world. Uh, Frantz Fanon famously takes the second lyric, Wretched of the Earth, to think about anti-colonial struggles in Algeria and beyond. And, uh, you know, I was really moved by Dorothy Healy, who's another figure that I write about in the book. Um, <clears throat> you know, I went through her complete oral history at Cal State Long Beach, which Maurice Isherman conducted. Uh, and she says, you know, shortly after she left the Communist Party, that she said, if I ever had a memoir, I'd want to title it Traditions Chains Have Bound Us. So a slight adaptation from the line, you know, no more traditions chains have bound us. Uh, because she says, you know, it, it, in essence, in order for revolutionary traditions to remain revolutionary they have to be you know constantly questioning constantly uh relentlessly interrogating themselves uh you know otherwise they're not revolutionary anymore so you know i mean a lot of this at present is trying to you know it, it like keep alive that questioning nature for the present um in a way that i hope keeps some of these traditions alive and open Absolutely. And I also think that, um, you know, if I can read into the book a little bit, I think it also is speaking directly to activists in a, in a very direct way. And, and in trying to, in, in a sense, remind us of the interconnected sort of uh, nature of the political actions that we carry out, because the nature of our media landscape, the nature of social media, the nature of cultural production today, everything feels very interconnected and yet totally disparate and atomized. And, you know, everyone is in their own little world and not connected to each other, despite what technology pretends it does for us. And so in a sense, I, I, I was thinking as I was reading through the book about, you know, that this is a book for historians, for students, for people who want to learn about history, but it's also a book for activists, for revolutionaries. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I speak to a lot of classes and, you know, people ask uh, sort of, you know, what's my advice for writers now? And I mean, it's my advice for all humans now. Like we all have to fight like hell. We all have to organize like hell to survive this moment and, and, and to, you know, hopefully build something better out of it. There are extraordinary forces arrayed against us. Uh, <clears throat> you know, um, I, we, 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 can't, we, we can't think with, you know, anything less than total urgency about the kind of climate catastrophe that's upon us. But we also have to, you know, return to a lot of these questions that figures were asking uh in the period of the advent of fascism to think about the growth of far right uh, proto-fascist and fascist and ultranationalist forces that are uniting, um, you know, that, you know, can make very similar appeals, uh, commonsensical appeals uh, to give people easy outs to difficult questions. And, um, you know, my sense is, we have to have a sense of the world as big as the forces that are arrayed against us. And I write with the conviction 
that we have in the past, that we're a product of ongoing struggles. The work is cut out before us and we have to do it now. Could not agree more. Uh, Christina Heatherton, thank you so much for chatting with us today. The book, we've been talking about it. This is an absolute must read, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. Get yourselves your copies, preferably from independent bookstores wherever you can. Uh, Christina Heatherton is the Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College in Connecticut. The book, again, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. Get yourselves a copy. Christina, thanks for coming and chatting with us today. Eric, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you as always. Talk to you again next time. Thank you.